glad that I'm back after a several months sabbatical. I was back last week, but those of you who weren't here last week um, and are just here now and I'm seeing you and I'm thinking, oh, I'm glad to see you. And a lot of people here are here today from the Bay School in San Francisco. If you are one of those people, would you stand up, please, so everybody can say hello to you? There you go. There you go. So turn around, because then everybody can't see you. There you go. We could just say a, 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 a joint hello. One, two, three. Hello. hello. Welcome. Okay, you can sit down. What, uh, and you're here because, where is your teacher? What happened to? Emily and Jane are the teachers. What, how about one of the students in that class? Did you just start or uh, is this mid-year? Or? We, we have a Six hours a day on Buddhism for three weeks. Wow. So that's 15 times six, which is 90. That's serious. So where are you? Did you just start? We're in the second week. In the second week. Okay. That's great. Uh, so you, you're studying the different uh, lineages of Buddhism, Theravada, Mahayana, Tibetan Buddhism, other kinds of Buddhism, devotional Buddhism. This particular place, you might want to know, is uh, uh, was founded, it says on our stationary uh, Spirit Rock Meditation uh, Center, it, I think it says in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, but it is in the Theravada Buddhist tradition. And what makes it that is... Uh, uh, is the fact that it's based on the, uh, the, the canon of work that comes from the earliest writings of the Buddha. Um, uh, uh, it used to be called Hinayana Buddhism when it was compared to uh, Mahayana Buddhism because Mahayana means large raft and Hinayana means small raft. And it seemed derogatory to the Hinayana people because... In fact, it was held in a derogatory way by the Mahayana people. Like you had the beginning idea, but we have the big idea. It's not that that enlightenment is not just for an elite group of meditators, but enlightenment is for everyone. And personal enlightenment is not possible until everybody is enlightened. We do it all of us together, which didn't make Theravada look good, among other things. But uh, Theravada is a better description, I think. It means the teachings of the elders. And the beginnings, the roots of Buddhism, are in the forest tradition in, uh, in uh, about 500 years before the birth of Jesus, in the, that century, between the fifth, 500 and 600, uh, before the birth of Jesus, where we make our common calendar now. And what's different about us and another Theravada group is that the big difference when Theravada practice came to the United States is that it became largely a lay practice. 
And so nobody here is in robes. Nobody here has taken monk's vows uh, among the teaching faculty. Nobody has monk's vows. Nobody has... Uh, uh, we have vows, but not vows of celibacy uh, and uh, not vows of not living in the world. And where I think I am now in thinking about that, uh, I didn't ever feel bad that I was on the small raft instead of the big raft, and that looked like a much nicer thing well, being for all people than just myself. Uh, I didn't believe that that was true. I didn't think it could be true. Because I think if I am for myself and I take out the habits of my mind that close my heart, which is what I'm going to talk about today, that makes me an open-hearted person towards all beings. But also because the larger thing is, I think that it is by paying attention to all beings that we actually wake up in our lives to some fundamental thing. Like everybody is struggling. Everybody's having a hard time. Being a human being is a hard endeavor from when you're born, actually. I was thinking about, uh, I was going to tell you that I was in uh, Trader Joe's yesterday, and uh, there was an employee at Trader Joe's, a woman whose role there is to be your uh, concierge shopper. She said, she said, can I, oh, she recognized me because she used to come here before she got that job. She said, alas, I work on Wednesdays, but... But she said, but I feel like I'm doing the same thing here in my job as I was learning about doing when I was with Spirit Rock because she said, all these people come here every day and I get to meet each of them with compassion and with interest and with trying to really look them in the eye and see what's going on with them. So she said, I feel like I'm doing here what you're teaching there so I don't have to be there. I am here for other people. It makes me so happy to be here and help people shop. That's really what she is. She's a, she sometimes works on the register, but mostly she circulates and goes around and sees if people need help with their shopping. So, I mean, really, I thought that was great. And I thought she was right when she said, I'm doing the same thing. I'm looking around at other people and trying to be helpful. That's why this job makes me happy. And where I am in my teaching arc uh, over these last many years is really seeing that that, that that impulse of the mind to either be self-preoccupied, what do I need, what do I want, and compared with the other impulse of the mind to say, what's going on around me? What's this whole life all about? How are other people doing? How can I help them out? Is that that's really not only the the path that's most productive in terms of changing the habits of my mind, but it's a very touching and poignant path. You look around and everybody's got a story. I love looking around at uh, people in uh, airports, for instance, people who are in airport boarding lounges, and I think about. Nobody is in this airport boarding lounge by accident. I mean, you had to, first of all, you had to have bought a ticket so to get there and gone through a few things. And everybody's going somewhere for a reason. Sometimes they're going because it's their grandfather's 88th birthday party, and sometimes they're going because their sister in graduate school in Boston is just taken ill, and you're going to, they're going to be there with them. And sometimes they're going 
because they they have an audition to um, be a cellist in the in the Chicago Symphony, which never comes up once in a million years when somebody dies, and they're really tense about that. You don't know why everybody's, but nobody's by accident there. Everybody's got a reason to be there. And I love to sit around and think, what, what are they, and everybody shares in common that they want to get there safe. The plane should leave, and it should land. They all share that common desire. That's what we all share with the whole world when we get up every morning that we should get up in the morning and be healthy and feel good and come home at night. We made it another day safely. I think about that when I'm driving on the uh, freeway and all of a sudden I get uh, the freeway gets all clogged up and the, the traffic slows down. And sometimes I think, ah, uh, you know, I, I wish people wouldn't, go one person in a car and look at the freeway. Usually I think that I'm one person in a car, so <laughs> it's totally not nice. I mean, really, totally, totally an erroneous thought. You know, really, one person with one errand should be home at this. And then you come around a corner and you see there's been some dreadful accident. And you see somebody isn't going to get home well that day. And then I think, ah, oh, I just had that negative thought a uh, what do I want to call it? a contentious thought, and I could have instead thought, "Oh, the traffic's very crowded now. I really hope there's no accident. If there is, may they be safe. May the paramedics be on their way. May people be able to help them out." I would feel better if I thought that, even if there wasn't an accident, because I would have filled my mind with a sweet thought rather than an annoyed thought. And it doesn't matter if I come around the bend and there's just too many people driving. It's just few, too many people driving. So goodness, so thank goodness that there wasn't an accident. I think what the Buddha taught, and this is what we're going to talk about today, we're going to meditate first a little bit in a, um, particular two kinds of meditation practices. But I really wanted to start especially by saying that the more I teach, the longer I teach, the more I'm thinking that what the Buddha taught was the way to happiness and that the way of happiness is seeing clearly and the way of, and what we would see if we saw clearly. This is a very, this is the cliff notes on Buddhism, that we would be happy if we saw clearly. If we saw clearly, we would always see that the Four Noble Truths are always true. Life is difficult for everyone we tend to make it worse by demanding it be otherwise. We don't have to do it that way. We could do it another way. We could be happy. And here's a way to train your mind to really meet every moment with compassion. And that's really the whole of Buddhism. And you can start with the Four Noble Truths, or you can start by working in, a, uh, in an enterprise where you meet everybody with compassion. May all beings be peaceful and happy because your mind would be peaceful and happy while thinking that. So one thing I didn't do yet is I didn't see how many people, uh, we, have, we have all those people visiting, about 20 people. How many people are new to Spirit Rock, not part of the Bay School? Hello. Hello. What's your name? Rob. Rob, welcome. Thank do you. you live in Marin? No. Where do you live? Sonora. Is that the right direction? 
<laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. Have you snow? Uh, there was snow. Yeah. Have you been to Spirit Rock before? There were just grounds here just yeah. 20 years ago. Look at this. So thank you for coming. Oh, thank you. Who else has not been here ever before? Yeah. Well, you are very welcome to come and be here whenever. Who else hasn't come? Who else did I not see next last week? So I have to say hello all over again. <laughs> Hello, oh Lynn, I'm looking for you. Yeah, Uja, I'm happy that you're here. Who else? Everybody else I know. Good. Oh, Ace isn't here. If Ace were here, he would say, "Before you meditate, take one minute." So, when take one minute, where you are, turn around next to you, turn and say hello to the person next to you that you don't know. If you know them, talk to the person before you or behind you. <laughs> turn around. There were, there were a couple of reasons why I wanted to do that right then. I'll just tell you the reasons. One of them is I wanted you to have a, a, a lab experiment in the moment that greeting somebody with interest picks you up, makes you happier. Didn't that make you happier, wake you up, you feel better? The other is that we're going to do a period of contemplative practice now, and notwithstanding it's morning, people sometimes fall asleep because there's we're sitting with eyes closed and relaxing. It's quiet in here. So that sometimes meeting people wakes you up a little bit. So it gets your energy up. And it allows me to say the third thing, which is if you tend to fall asleep, keep your eyes open. There is no rule that says Buddhist meditation requires closed eyes. As a matter of fact, Zen meditators keep them halfway open which is incredibly hard to do. I can't do it. That It's harder to keep them half open. You have to really work. They have such a tendency to close. And Tibetan meditators in certain, um, uh, in certain lineages of Tibetan practice sit with their eyes wide open. So sit with your eyes however is conducive to keep you awake. 
And what we'll do is we'll sit all together for about 20 minutes, but not one 20-minute thing. Every five minutes or so, I'll tell you another su suggestion for how to work with attention. Because there isn't a way to meditate. Meditate, the word meditate means, it comes from the Latin root meditare, and it means to purposely put your attention on something. It doesn't say what to purposely put it on. You could put it on a candle flame. You could put it on a, 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 a mantra that you said to yourself or a mantra that you sang to yourself. A mantra is a series of meaningful words. Somebody, People often ask me if, if, if I said Pepsi-Cola hits the spot over and over again, would that work as a mantra? And it would, in a certain way, work to concentrate your mind. It might not pick up your spirits so much <laughs> as a peace on earth for everyone, peace on earth for everyone. That might lift up your spirits a little more. Maybe less than Pepsi-Cola, I'm not sure. But I think Pepsi-Cola would get boring if you did it. You can meditate on the feelings in your body as you move your attention through your body, and you can meditate on your breath. Many meditations, many religious traditions have meditations that begin with feel your breath. Probably for these reasons, everybody who's alive is breathing. That's a sign that you're alive, so everybody can do that. And the other thing is, it's very immediate, and everybody feels it. If we had a meditation to meditate on feeling your heartbeat, you can sometimes feel that, but not always. So we'll start with breath, and then after five minutes, I'll give you another instruction. And then after five minutes, I'll add another instruction. And then after five minutes, I'll make a last instruction. And then we'll be back and talk some more. So sit in a way that's likely to keep you awake. My friend Brahmani says, don't sit on your tailbone. Sit on your thighs so that you're actually sitting a little bit forward. Don't lean back on the chair. Sit with your back off the chair and on your, th on your thigh and pick your spine up. See, I, when I say that, she, my friend Brahmani is a yoga teacher, so she says it that way. I say, sit with dignity, because I think this is a dignified way to speak. <laughs> sit as if you were meeting the queen <laughs> and just for a moment listen to the room around you not very noisy it's very quiet actually but if you listen very carefully, you hear here and there tiny sounds. And listening for really tiny sounds wakes up the mind.
And as you sit, you probably notice that you can feel all different parts of your body. You feel your arms wherever they are and your hands wherever they are and your shoulders and your rib cage and your thighs and your knees and your calves and your feet. Even the top of your head, which you actually feel from inside with attention. And probably the most prominent of those sensations is the group of sensations in your chest and shoulders and arms and belly that make up the feelings that you feel when breath goes into your body and out of your body. Those are the parts of your body that move the most when breath goes in and out. It's really important to do this in a very relaxed way so that you don't work with the breath to make it longer or shorter. Each breath will be a little bit different depending on what your body needs right then. So you don't need to deliberately take breaths long or short as you might in a yoga class. You're really offering your awareness to the experience of being breathed by actually the whole of the cosmos and proximally by our local biosphere and your lungs in a reciprocal relationship, breathing life into each other. Now you have a choice in meditative styles. I'd like to invite you to stay with particular awareness on the breath coming in and out, particularly paying attention. You cannot have a, make a note in your mind with a word, or you can. If you want to just be part of the experience, breath in, breath out, breath in, breath out, just be with that breath as if you're riding on the breath in and out and in and out. Some people find that it helps them pay attention to say to themselves, breath in, breath out, not out loud, of course, but in your mind, breath in and breath out, breath in and breath out when those experiences are happening. You can do A or B, whichever works better for you. And in about five minutes, I'll offer another instruction.
as a way of deepening concentration as you continue to sit, feeling the breath comes in, the breath goes out. Notice that there's a little bit of a space between that moment where the out-breath disappears and the in-breath starts up again. It's a very short moment, but there is a break there. There's not one continuous in-out, in-out. And so as you breathe for the next several minutes, see if you can notice the feeling of anticipating the next breath. Breath in, breath out, waiting. Oh, breath in and out and waiting. So you're adding that little tiny moment in consciousness between the end of a breath and the beginning of a next one. Not so much looking to have something happen in that moment as to really make the attention more keen to be able to see more clearly the delineating edges of experience. It's an exercise in attention. Breath in, breath out, waiting. If your mind all of a sudden says to you, too tired about this, then stop. You'll continue to breathe. And you say, oh, this feels much better not having to do every single breath. And if you feel good, say, I feel good. And in your mind, notice, happy feeling, resting. And then go back and breathe and mark the breath some more. You are always breathing. You're not stopping. In, out, waiting.
And now for some minutes, we'll sit using a word, phrase, a mantra in the mind. So you keep on sitting, keep on feeling your breath, and saying to yourself a two-phrase mantra, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. Particularly seeing if your mind feels different when you say, when I meet this moment fully, and may I meet it as a friend. You don't try both well, try both phrases on one on one breath or spread it out over two breaths or spread it out over four breaths. See how it feels. We'll just sit for three or four minutes with this.
And we have here at Spirit Rock, uh, in this class, the habit of saying aloud the names of people we're thinking about particularly. There are other Buddhist sanghas in Marin who do this as well. It isn't universally done, prayers specifically out loud, but it seems like the right thing for this community. So those people who feel like it mention the names of people they're thinking about out loud, who they're thinking about because they've had some special good thing happen to them or some special difficult thing that's happening to them. I'm particularly thinking of Shahara, who's a teacher in training here at Spirit Rock, who uh, was supposed to be teaching the Metta retreat that's happening now and has had a flare-up of her um, long-term illness. And I'm hoping that she'll get better soon. And I'm also thinking of um, Ellen, who's in our class and here today, who many of you know has uh, has a daughter, Elizabeth, who has been really struggling with treating her aggressive breast cancer for two years and has most recently been found cancer-free. So, um, may Shahara feel better. May Elizabeth stay better. Who are you thinking about? I'm thinking about the also all of the firefighters in Australia and uh, in particular the American firefighters who've gone over to help them in this really terrible, terrible conflagration. Who are you thinking about?
I'm thinking as I often do that these minutes at the end of our sitting together when we share into our communal prayer space wishes for people who are dear to us are maybe the most valuable piece of the whole morning. I always think to myself, there isn't a better way to express uh, the inclination of all of our hearts that comes with us at birth to really be moved by the situation of others when we hear about them so that when we hear about people who we know and whose name we recognize and we hear, ah, this is happening with them, we feel a special feeling. And then when we hear about people that we don't know, but they have something, that we know somebody who has that same thing, there's a way that it so confirms for me the fact that human beings' hearts and minds are born to be empathic. We are born to register other people's distress at suffering and pain and to register other people's happiness in situations that we would feel happiness as well. makes it so clear to me that when we say that praying for all beings is like praying for ourselves and praying for ourselves is also praying for all beings. But the hearing about the all the beings is the best. May all of the people that we mentioned and all of the people that we thought about but didn't mention May all of those people, and may we, and may everywhere, everyone, everywhere, have people and connections who care about them and rejoice with them at births of babies and triumphs of survival and comfort them in times of difficulty and loss. Really, that which I just said about it being a first-hand lesson of you never know and all the things that the Buddha said, you never know, and life is full of 10,000 joys and 10,000 woes, and they, just ha they don't just happen. They happen because other things happened and other things happen because other things happened. And we get to be a part of that all the time, the coming and the going and the losing and the getting. and Possible both ways. They talk about the Buddha being shocked as a young man to find that existential anxiety that most people find earlier in their life, that people age, they get sick, they die. Fancy psychological name is existential angst. And the Buddha in the story, as you probably know, woke up to it in his late 20s. But many of us realized that before that, that 
this is a this is a fragile thing. This whole it's not so much fragile as what am I going to think about tenuous or you just don't know. Um, one of the uh, uh, one of the Tibetan uh, teachers who came to the United States to teach here in the Tibetan tradition, his name was Sansanim, is no longer living. His main thing that he taught was, you don't know, just, and he'd say, he would say in a uh, slightly, uh, didn't speak English, but he could say one phrase, at least, and his phrase that he was known for saying is, only keep, don't know mind, don't know, don't know. You got <laughs> When I heard it from Sansanim, I thought it was very, really depth. You never know. Life is so from one minute to the next. And when I when I just said that to you, who came into my mind was my late mother-in-law, who, when I first was a young bride and just married, would phone up and say, so, Mother, uh, uh, we'd made a plan about you and Dad are going to come and have... Uh, lunch with us on Sunday, are you coming? And she would say, well, we should live and be well. I'll come on Sunday. I'll let you know Sunday. And I was so annoyed with her. What do you mean you should live and be well? I'll be there on Sunday. But really, when you think about it, it's not convenient for planning a shopping list or cooking, etc. But you you don't know. You never know. You never know anything. And if we only thought, you never know, maybe this will happen, maybe that will happen, we probably wouldn't get out of bed. We'd just sit there. And something might happen then, you know, be an earthquake. And you, but you never really know. And we're surprised that things keep happening. So I, I first I want to ask all of our uh, guests who have been studying Buddhism, uh, how was that meditation? Was that something you've been doing or like that, or variations of that? Are you all right with that? What did you think about the saying the prayers out loud? Somebody thought something? <laughs> What's your name? Nina. Nina, thank you very much for saying that. Nina's pointing out that in uh, synagogue practice, there's a, there's a normal expected time that people read out the names of people who have been bereaved. and They also read out who got born, and they celebrate baby namings. So everybody gets born and dies. And everybody, I, I think everybody has traditions about that. I'm sure everybody has traditions about that. What else? Just particularly because I'm, because you're here. This is a pedagogical move I don't usually make. <laughs> Did I say anything that you, that you want me to elucidate for? Or maybe I'll elucidate and then you'll decide, Jane. Okay. So last week we were talking about New Year's and making New Year's resolutions or thinking about what are we doing, and mostly thinking about oh, what it's my 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 foreground question all the time is what are we really doing here? 
what's this whole really thing about? So I don't think so much as being a Buddhist or indeed about being a Jew, although I am Jewish and I am familiar and I do belong to a synagogue. But what I think about is not about being something because you mostly get born into something. It's a, like a clan or a lineage. But what, is, what am I doing? What is it doing for me, either of those places, that's requiring of me that I transform my mind? And since I think that, that a religious practice could and should be a practice of transformation, what am I trying to transform? What's this all about? Somebody years ago came to talk to me at a metta retreat. I was teaching a loving-kindness retreat here at Spirit Rock. And two or three days went by, and we'd given talks, and we'd made explanations, and said all kinds of things. And uh, so I was quite surprised when we got up to doing one-on-one -on -one meetings with students, and they came to see me and the other teachers. And... Uh, one of the students, I was surprised because it seemed to me, didn't we say this? Probably not. One of the students came in and sat down and looked at me and very respectfully said, what are we doing here, really? <laughs> and it's a, so it's a really good question because it's not we're getting to be good meditators, I'm not, at least not for me. What I think I am doing here is I am steadfastly trying to change the, transform the habits of my mind from those that are self-serving and not so wholesome and me-oriented rather than out-there-oriented to habits of the mind that are wholesome and loving and, and useful in the world, like patience and honest and um, generous and moral Mostly I am all those things. Mostly you are all those things. But I didn't actually think so much when I started to practice, when I got involved in mindfulness practice, that it was going to really, in addition to anything else, it was going to change my my morality. My morality was always pretty good, I think. I grew up in a family with integrity, and I behaved myself. But, uh, and I still do, that's not what I think about, about being the main point, but it is the main point, because the mind that uh, feels good about itself and how it is in the world, it's one of the pillars that holds up the mind when it's able, to, so that it's able to look around and say, wow, everybody is really suffering, aren't they? What would be the good thing to do here? What's the most honest thing that I could say? How... How much patience I've been really working on this. I'm pretty patient. And I just read the uh, the final edit of my friend Gail Stark's book, um, Choosing a Life of Integrity, based on the Buddhist teachings about integrity, which is coming out in May. And I'll tell you, oh, it's May, May 17th, Sunday, May 17th. Uh, her book is going to be introduced at Book Passage, and I'll inter interview her there about it, so you can write it in your calendar. May, May 17th is a Sunday. And I just finished reading the final, final edited version of the book, and it's so 
uh, straightened me up. I mean, I haven't been living exactly a wanton life, but I found a million little ways in which I could have, like, gussied it up a little bit so it would be more integrity, more this, more that. And I thought, ah. (laughs) Uh, But actually, the hidden story in that is you feel better when you're doing that and that you know that you're being absolutely punctilious about what you do. The reason uh, that I took this detour to tell you is that in the in the arc of the Buddhist story, they always start by telling the story. the 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 Buddhist Buddhist books, fundamental Dharma books, are divided into perfecting integrity, perfecting the mind, perfecting wisdom, and really the folk tale around that system is that the Buddha needed many, 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 many lifetimes as a bird and a uh, as other animals uh, it, in the realm of cosmologies that include rebirths in other realms. But the folk tales about that is he needed all those lifetimes to perfect all those perfections of integrity in order that in his life as Siddhartha Gautama he would be merit, meriting a clear his my clear mind, clear because he was so clear about how he behaved, to see clearly the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, so that it really comes up on top of that. So that what I'm mostly teaching these days is going back to what are we really doing with changing the habits of the mind from self-centered to other-oriented, and certainly changing them from contentious to compassionate. That's, I think, the whole thing about what we're doing. Rather than fighting with life, having a compassionate response to life. That's why I uh, like to offer that meditation, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. Some people do that frequently as a meditation. I do it frequently when I'm in places when I'm irritated because my flight has just been canceled. You're standing and you're waiting and you've gotten all the way through and you get to the... You get to the boarding lounge, and they say, this flight has been canceled because it's had engine trouble in Los Angeles. You think, phooey. And you think, wait a minute, I don't want to fly in a disabled airplane anyway. So, But the first thing is, I am inconvenienced, phooey. May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? Well, this is interesting. Let's see what I can befriend in this airport. What can I do? I think that life goes along with bumps, that are all fooey. Okay, meet it as a friend, fooey. How many people had a fooey minute this morning? Something happened that was annoying to me. Not really, it sounded too crowded on the freeway, too something on the something, hot, no hot water in the shower, whatever. You all got over it, because we just do. We do that all the time. But really with everything, you don't get the job you want, the person that you... Fancy isn't interested in you. It's not, it's, not, it's not a small deal. It's a big deal. But may I meet this moment as a friend? May I learn something from it? So in the tradition, I was going to tell you a New Year's Eve story that I didn't know last week, so I didn't. But I did know it. I, I spoke with a friend of mine who lived back east. Lives back east. 
sometime this week, and we say, I said, how was your New Year's? She said, oh, it was great. We, we, we went to a party, a New Year's Eve party. My husband and I went to a New Year's Eve party. We've been going to the same party at the same people for years and years. There are about 20 people there, and it wasn't just a plain party. Um, she said, as you can imagine, it wasn't a plain party. There was a big table set. There were 20 people there, and there was one, 20 people, 20 chairs set around the table. And we're all old friends. Everybody's in the business of uh, meditation teaching or some sort of spiritual teaching. She said, we always discuss some topic as, we, as the evening activity. So she said, the topic this year is everybody had to answer the question, not which they don't know in advance, what are you planning to do in this new year to bring more love into the world? So, you know, I had to write that sentence a few times because I wrote it down, and just by habit, I wrote, to bring more love into your life. I said, no, no, she didn't say into your life. She said, into the world. So then I wrote, then the second time I wrote out these notes, I wrote into your life. Uh, that's what everybody is looking to bring more love into their life. But it's actually into the world. So my friend who's, I won't tell you her name or her partner's name either because it would, and she said, you know how so-and-so felt. You can probably figure that so-and-so, when I said about, that's the question that we're each going to have to individually answer, that he said, ah, oh, I hate those kind of questions. You know, I, I myself, how many people love that kind of question? <laughs> That's sitting around a table with a whole bunch of people and will now say, what are we thankful for this year? You know, that, I think, oh, let's just all agree. How many people are thankful? Okay, now we'll eat. You know, the, 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 you know, the meaningful, deep sharing it's very funny for to say, but actually the meaningful deep sharing I do with my closest friends, not with 20 people. Anyway, she said, so you know who said, ah, I hate those kind of questions. And I was thinking, uh, <laughs> I was thinking my, my myself maybe being kind of a, 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 a I don't know what you'd call this, uh, I think to myself, well, how am I going to bring more love into the world? How would you even start? Where would you even start? Look what's going on out there. And somebody else would think that is a bizarre question. How am I going to bring? How are I going to bring more love into the world? And I thought about it. And I thought it's not a bizarre question because I thought that the only way that I, Sylvia, can bring more love into the world is to liberate my own heart from whatever is holding it hostage. Really. That's the only way I can bring more love into the world. And then I imagined uh, a New Yorker cover. <laughs> you know how they often have a map, like uh, like the mind of a dog, and you see like the inside of a dog brain, and it'd be partitioned out, a bone, bark at mailman, uh, bark at UPS, nap. The cat mind says nap. Uh, eat, play with string, nap, eat, play with string. I mean, this, it takes up the mind. So I was thinking about my own mind. If someone drew it in a New Yorker cover, we'd have like territories, zones, provinces in the brain. One of them would be um, 
old fears barricading themselves so that they can't be seen, and uh, a stockpile of grudges ready to be revived for <laughs> entertainment in periods of boredom. When people go on retreat, they sit down and they say, well, I feel pretty good. You know, my retreat's a good time in my life, not too much going on. Good time to be in retreat. Okay, breathing in and out, in and out. I remember that time so-and-so said, and I didn't say back to them, they have a, like a pile of unread files or, or resurfacing files or files from the mind that you cannot just eject from your computer. I don't think you can eject things from your computer. They save them in subterranean places. They always seem to be commandeering people's computers, and that makes a difference. If you could get rid of things in it, everybody would push that, I think. Secret lusts, that would be a part of the mind. <laughs> Other place in the mind would be ideas that start with the phrase, I'm never going to forgive so-and-so as long as I live. <laughs> Can you think of another realm of the mind? I mean, it's not all the mind filled with with retribution and contention. What else? Worry. What did you say, Jeff? Money. money. Thinking about money, thinking about my health. I used to, I, we used to say on retreat that people have three main things that their mind thinks about my job, my relationship, and my health. That's it. Uh, what? regrets if I hadn't done this and if I hadn't done that. And you can say, you know, I'm fine with that. You know, what's done is done. I was doing the best I could. I didn't know better. Couldn't have been otherwise. Look what else I has good in my life now. I couldn't have been having this if I had had, hadn't had that. But two seconds after the mind is quiet, it says, let's think about that regret. You know, all these things, somehow, if they weren't there, my mind was completely clear. Then think about It'd be really wonderful. You look out and you say, look at all those other people. I am experiencing peace of mind. I began to think about, I've, I've talked about this a lot. Uh, I, I did not think about peace when, or peace of mind when I started to practice meditation. I thought I'd be less anxious, which I did get to be less anxious. My husband says I became more kind uh, I was always kind, but uh, it wasn't a worry that I had. I better start meditating because I'm not kind. I didn't think that. But I surprisingly didn't have that as a worry, but I became very much more kind because I am very much more alert to what isn't kind, and I don't do that. So that you know, that's one of those integrity things. I think, would that be kind? I remember Gandhi saying, before I do any action, I think about how my action might affect the poorest person on earth. So obviously you don't know who's the poorest person on earth, but the general sense of thinking about everything I do in terms of how is this going to impact other people, it's an amazing thing to think about. I remember being so... so impressed by that. So I was going to tell you uh, <laughs> I'll tell you that I'm laughing because it says here, tell three stories 
three stories came into my mind. One of them was the story of the Buddha sitting on the night of his enlightenment. Two other things came to my mind that were amazing stories to tell on just this thing. And by the time I wrote out about the Buddha, I forgot the two other ones. So it says here, <laughs> tell the three stories. And they went. the two others went out of my mind. And then this morning I looked at this at home and I thought, well, I don't remember those two stories, but then another thing happened. So now I don't have three stories, I have two. And I have a story I want to talk about before I tell you those two stories, which are now written down, so I won't forget them. That's okay. Uh, I, w I was thinking a lot recently about uh, stories, like I said before, that there's a folklore tradition that says in the, in the time of the Buddha, it, before the, the era in which the Buddha lived, before the time that the Buddha lived, he lived many lifetimes as animals that perfected their courage or their friendliness or their truthfulness. So that's a that's actually a story. Okay, leave that story. It wasn't one that I even had thought about. But I think to myself, I don't actually believe that that happened. There's no belief system that I have. Buddhism doesn't really talk about transmigration uh, Buddhist scholars now are talking about what does what do people mean when they say in my last lifetime, in my next lifetime. And maybe that's uh, another way of saying moment to moment we are reborn into the karma of that moment. And it might not mean, it doesn't to me, that an essence of me is going to arise. You may have another plan but or another belief system. That's fine. Uh, it's not my experience. But the idea that I am reborn moment to moment really helps me with the regrets business. I'm this person now, not that person. Uh, the idea that I can at any time say, you know, I am now reborn as a person with really um, strong integrity. Or um, I like the idea of the stories of the Buddha having been uh, a water buffalo and uh, a bird and whatever else he was, a monkey, in order to perfect different qualities of integrity. Because I read them, I have read them to my grandchildren. I'll read them to my great-grandchildren. Stories are really wonderful vehicles for carrying ideas. So this is all a background for telling you the story of the Buddha sat down under the bow tree. Because on the one hand, I tell that story all the time uh, about the Buddha sat down under the bow tree and this and this and this happened. But I don't think it actually happened. I think it's a metaphor. But I, th I think I'll stop telling that. People can figure out if they want to that it's a metaphor. Because I've just read a book called The World Could Be Otherwise by Norman Fisher. Who read it? Have you seen it? It's fabulous, isn't it? It's the best book I've read. I wrote, I wrote Norman right away an email, and I said, thank you so much for writing this book. I don't have to write another word, because you have said it all. <laughs> but Norman really says it all, 
and beautifully because Norman's a poet and it's wonderful and it's so uplifting. And he said, forget about this business if it's a story. The stories that have tremendous power. The story about Jesus being born uh, in a manger with a, a star in the sky and wise men of a virgin mother. It's a lovely story. It's a lovely story. Whether or not it makes rational sense and his particular teaching of love one another as I have loved you. That's a very important teaching. So Christianity sails on for years and years and years, not on the veracity of that particular birth incident, but on the profound importance of love one another as I have loved you, that human beings can really love each other, that they can really hold the wish May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. I don't think that there was actually a Moses who crossed a, a Red Sea. There's no historical reference in any contemporary text that there was such a prince of Egypt. It's a myth. Most of the rabbis I know know that it's that believe that it's a myth, but it is the story of Moses that's the prototype. <laughs> for the mind going from being enslaved to a mind that's liberated and able to free itself from greed, hatred, and delusion. It's a myth that fueled the whole civil rights movement. It's a myth that fueled every human rights movement. Let my people go. So it doesn't have to be actually proven that it happened. I think that stories about births that happen in special ways and miraculous events that happen and people ascending and to heaven. I think they're wonderful because people remember them and they get a feeling, oh, this was a really special person. And what was their message? So that whole preamble was a, a way to tell you to really look at uh, Norman's book, which is great. Um, talking about the generosity of spirit. Generosity of spirit, not contending with what's happening, saying, this is what's happening. Okay, I'll deal with that. That the whole of freedom depends on a kind of generosity of spirit. I'm, I'm not I'm liking what's happening, but it's what hap what's happening. These things happen. Things happen in life. I can either fight with life or, or not. I can either be bitter about the fact that life is... Life is um, um, fleeting, impermanent. Or I could say, let me use this moment for the well-being of all the beings that I meet. I keep thinking about... <laughs> if you go to uh, um, uh, Trader Joe's in Larkspur, look around and see Laura. Tell her you heard about her in class. She was teaching. <laughs> so now I'm going to tell you the story of the Buddha. They say, it is said, once upon a time there was a man who left his family and decided to embark on a path of training his mind so that he could understand why human beings suffer so much, specifically with old age, sickness, and death. And what was the meaning of it all, anyway? That we, that you, we hear that sometimes now, that uh, people are in a mindset of thinking, why should I do anything? Life is, life is going to end anyway. 
Why? Why learn a foreign language? Why learn trigonometry? Why do this? Why do that? There's no point. So the point, I think, is that the Buddha is going to come to is the point is that the mind can say, this is what's happening, this is what happens, and I can use my time that I'm here to console other people who haven't discovered that for themselves. That's my gloss on that. Okay, here's the Buddha. He leaves his family and takes up the life of a mendicant monk. He spends many years training with a very um, um, renowned meditation teacher, an equal amount of years studying with another renowned meditation teacher. He develops such skills of attention that he's able to sit in the sun without moving for hours and exist on one rice grain a day. And then he decides this isn't going to get me the answer to what I want to know. It has allowed me to learn how to endure very difficult situations. My mind is long enduring, but I still don't know what's the end of suffering in the mind. And the very particular meaning to suffering is, aside from pain, the the meaning aside from pain, because it doesn't, the enlightened mind does not not feel pain. It feels the pain. It feels the pain of disappointment. It feels pain. It feels everything, and it manages to keep itself clear around it. Say, this is what's happening now. I can do it. This happens to humans. It happens to all humans. I can reach out in prayer or in comradeship and take care of other humans, because I see this is the only way that a human life unfolds. So the story is, he says, I'm not doing this way of austerity he sits down under a particular tree. I was talking with somebody the other day about the gestures that he made under that tree. I've forgotten. Is our Buddha back here putting fingers down on the floor like this? Two fingers. One finger. His whole hand. This way or that way? This way. Okay, so here's a story. The Buddha sat down under the tree and he composed himself into perfect equanimity, which does not mean that he's not there. It means he's fully awake and his mind is balanced. And uh, his mind is balanced and forces come to assail him uh, he also it radiates out from him, which is available to him because his mind is balanced and his mind is clear. He is able to wish well to all beings, including himself, of course. Wishing well, steadfast well-wishing is coming out from him like a protective shield, actually. And he's attacked in, these story, in this story by all of the forces that disrupt a, a peaceful mind. Here come, also back to here, he, here comes the um, forces of uh, anger and uh, enmity racing into his mind in the picture books about this. They, Mara rides in on a horse with, with spears and arrows and things to do war with uh, out of this side. And uh, 
the Buddha, uh, the Buddha remains tra uh, tranquil and calm. And out of this side, side of his mind, or from where he's sitting, come ev uh, come visions that are evocative of lust. All right, if I can't frighten you, I'll turn you on and really confuse your mind. He puts his hand down, and he says, "I see your forces, Mara, and I am not afraid." I love that. I just think that it's such a an amazing. A summation of clear vision and say, I see your forces, Mara, trying to disrupt my mind and confuse me, but I'm not afraid. If we're not afraid, then the mind doesn't get this big storm of confusion in it. Uh oh, what should I do? So I see you, Mara, and I'm not afraid. I have a right to be here. I love that. I sometimes say, sometimes true. I mean, it's always true when I say it. I sometimes say to classes that I'm teaching, particularly on retreat, I say, you know, I say that when I'm on retreat or when I'm sitting, if my mind is in a really a bad storm, I might put my uh, my hand down and I'd say that. I see you, Mara, I'm not afraid. It says the Buddha also said, I'm not getting up until I'm fully enlightened. So I say this to a group of people. If I'm upset, I might say that. And often they laugh, ha ha, you think really if you say that you're going to get enlightened? I don't, it's not a matter of that I think that. It's a wonderful statement of self-confidence, you know. I'll, obviously if I don't, I'll get up. I'll, you know, then I, see, I see you, Mara, I'm not afraid. I have a right to be here and I'm going to sit here until I'm completely liberated. So meantime, here come all these forces that are meant to evoke anger in his, him and all these forces that are meant to evoke lust in him and they don't do anything to him because his mind is not moved by them. His mind is set in a absolutely um, in immovable equanimity and clarity. I see it. I'm not doing that. And it says... Uh, that he's beaming out all this loving kindness towards all these forces that mean to stir up his mind and that the, the force of loving kindness that he is beaming out transforms all of these uh, energies that are meant to upset him and turns them into flowers and that all around him he is surrounded by flowers all around the earth was covered with flowers I love that story. So I've been thinking, I've been apologizing for the story for years. I don't really think it really happened like that. First of all, it really happened. There you go. It really happened. Because what does really mean? People have been telling that story for years and years with great effect. That, that story supports my own practice in difficult times. I see your forces, Mara, and I'm not afraid. I want it to be with me at the end of my life. You know, it was very interesting to me in writing all of this and thinking it. I remembered that when I first, oh, 19, 1977, I went to, I began going to mindfulness retreats and studying. And uh, my teachers were Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield. And in the 
1984, they all uh, spent some time, or Joseph and Sharon did, in Burma, studying with Upandita, Burmese uh, meditation teacher. And they were studying with him, and they were particularly studying the practice of what they called metta. Metta is a Pali word for um, friend. So the real truth is that this is friendliness practice. And the friendliness practice was to say over and over in your mind as a continuing mantra, may I feel safe, may I feel uh, contented, may I feel strong, may I live with ease. Actually, that's the contemporary one that we're teaching now. The one that Sharon taught me in 1985, the year after she came back, I said, okay, I'm flying to Boston and I'm coming to Insight Meditation Society and I'll stay there several weeks and I'll do that practice and you'll teach me every day. So she did. And it was my first experience with say these words over and over and over and over again. And I took it very seriously so that I said them from the moment I opened my eyes until the whole day went by. You're supposed to say them, say them, say them. And... I'll tell you in a minute why I think they work profoundly. Uh, but I want to say that what she taught me to say was, may I be free of danger, may I have mental happiness, may I have physical happiness, may I feel ease of well-being, have ease of well-being. And just as I was writing these notes for myself for coming here, I was thinking... I like those, May. and I also noticed that now that I've listened to uh, some tapes of Sri Lankan people singing, they sing differently. They have extra words. They say, "May I feel, may I be free of enmity and danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being." And with all regard and love for my teachers, which I have tremendously, I think they discovered that Western uh, students did not like saying enmity and danger. That People said, I don't want to say a word like that. Uh, but I'm all right saying, may I feel safe. May I feel safe. May I feel happy. May I feel strong. May I live with ease. So I teach that and I say that. But actually, I said to myself probably a million times, I don't know how many times, a lot of times, weeks on end, saying, 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 may I be free of danger, may I have mental happiness, may I have physical happiness, may I have ease of well-being. The truth is that now if I'm riding in an airplane and the airplane starts to bounce, that starts in my mind by itself. May I be free of danger, may I have mental happiness, may I have physical happiness because I think I ground it in there so much. And I'm sorry that I didn't learn it in its original, original form, which is may I be free of enmity and danger, because the enmity part is, turns out for me to be the important part. What I really don't want to have in my mind is enmity. The, the idea of I'll never forgive so-and-so for the rest of my life is anathema, really, to me. I don't want to have any thought like that. I don't want to have malevolent thoughts in my mind. When I start to teach in a, a loving-kindness class, or even here, I'm doing it now, 
when I say about wishing well to yourself and your kin and your best friends and your not-so-best friends and uh, the people who uh, are the librarian and cut your hair and the person in the post office, people you would recognize, but you really don't know them. But I, there's a line in the Metta Sutta means, may all being, says, may all beings be at ease, omitting none. And we read that out loud. Oh, I was going to give everyone a copy of that. Where is one of our... There you are. They have them out there at the, in the office. They saved a whole pile of them left over from last week. It's a pile of metasutas. Everybody can take one home, put it on their refrigerator door, which is where everybody puts everything. Hmm? They're in a drawer out that back there. Oh, see, they heard me on the... Uh, <laughs> they can hear me in there. Because it's very clear to me that the important thing is no ill will in my mind. When I started, what I was saying is when I start to teach, and I say no enmity towards everyone, anyone, and somebody raises a hand and says... You're not going to ask me to wish good things to pray for you-know-who or you-know-who or think a good thought for you-know-who. I'm not. I'm just saying what, what I really don't want to do is think a bad thought, think an enmity thought. I can think about, I wish this person didn't have enough as much power in the world as they have. I wish we could change the structure of our culture I wish we could make difference, make make what people find important, teach, find a channel on TV that would just talk about what's good in the world, teach people what's good in the world. But I don't want enmity in my mind. I can say, no, this person I think is not a helpful person in the world, but I don't want to wish ill because having ill in your mind is painful. And it's a radical idea not to have ill will. So I, here's the other story that I want to tell you. I told you that story about he had such goodwill and he spent had such goodwill towards all these powers that were trying to confuse his mind that they turned into flowers. I went to a birthday party last... Um, Saturday night in Berkeley of a man named Ben... Oh, actually, wrong. I went to a birthday party at which I met a man named Ben Stern who was 90, is 98 years old. The birthday celebrant is 91. <laughs> the people at this birthday party were, as I am, old. <laughs> Uh, the daughter of the 98-year-old man was there, and he and I had a conversation. He, his daughter has produced a video with him. What's extraordinary, well, it's number one extraordinary about Ben Stern that he was um, picked up by the Gestapo in 1943 or four, and was in many different concentration camps and on two forced long marches from which two 
Very few people survived. But he survived. And he saw hideous things. And when the camps were liberated in the days just following the liberation, he found among the liberated people now wandering around in the camp figuring out where to go next, he met a woman who was his age who had been interned in the camp. And they decided to marry. And in the video, it says, uh, it doesn't say we didn't love each other. He said, we decided to marry because we were each alone in the world. We had no family left. And we decided that we needed to be, be together and take care of each other for the rest of his, our lives. So his wife died last year after 74 years of marriage. That's a long time to stay married. They had a... <laughs> And uh, so I talked to him. He's little, he's old, his mind is very good. He's very deaf, and uh, his vision is not so good, but his conversation is good. And uh, he said, the important thing for me is that when I got out and I started my new life, and he and his wife came to the United States, they had nothing had to learn a skill, so he learned to be a carpenter, and he finally built up, it, got, a, got to be a master carpenter and worked at that, and then he figured out another business, and he and his wife had three children and raised them up, and here he is in, uh, here he is in Berkeley going to a birthday party of a 91-year-old friend of his. And he said, the way I was able to do this and really move out and move forward as I decided I could not keep any anger in my mind, that I was out from there and anger was not going to do me any good. And I think that's so amazingly clear seeing. Don't need any more anger. When I was writing this down, that I had to let go of anger. When I decided I'm going to live now, I had to let go of anger, otherwise I couldn't have. And it came to my mind that um, Elie Wiesel, who recently died, who uh, wrote extraordinary books about his experience um, of being in the camps at 15 years old. The first of his books, by the way, is called Night. It's a very little book, and you can read it in a day and it's an extraordinary recounting about just post the war of how it was to be in that situation and Elie Wiesel who taught and wrote and until his death quite recently is known for saying never forget never forget and, I th and that popped into my mind when I was saying thinking and saying that Ben Stern said you have to let the anger go. But I think that they don't, they're not antithetical in any way. That what Wiesel is saying is don't forget that these are the kinds of things that human beings sometimes do to each other. We hardly can believe that that happened because really over-the-top atrocities, we couldn't imagine that a human person would do such terrible things to other human persons. Don't forget that, because I think 
I think what he meant by don't forget it is not look out for being a Jew, but look out for people that they might do this to other people and do do this to other people. And every time that we read some situation of merciless violence, merciless aggression on other people, I think we have to not forget that human beings are, on the one hand, I started out at the end of our sitting by saying, on the one hand, we are built for compassion. If somebody says, so-and-so is feeling much better these days than she has a granddaughter, or so-and-so says, my granddaughter is doing great, and may, may she continue, or my daughter is free of cancer, may she continue. Everybody feels good, even they don't know the person, and they don't know the daughter or the granddaughter. But you know that feeling, if it was yours, you'd feel good, oh good, oh good, oh good. Most of us, our hearts inclined that way. Most of us, I think, can't even think about some of the things that other people do, to, uh, to, that some people do to other people. But that some people do, and that somehow a whole world dedicated to not doing that. I don't know that it would free the world from situations of terribleness that rise up, but maybe if more people rise up against them, situations of terribleness, the world will become better. I did read to the group that was here last week about why uh, Nicholas Kristof said this is the best time ever to have been born. And somehow to hold that in the same mind with great-grandchildren of mine, if they get born in the next 10 years or so, will be... Um, old people at the turn of the century. You all will be old people at the turn of the century. And how's the world planet going to be? You know, um, Have to be enough people who want it to be otherwise. Oh, that's the name of Norman's book, The World Could Be Otherwise. The end of the story of... Um, the end of the story of the Buddha is the, the petals fall on the floor all around him. He gets up from his place. He stays there a little bit. And then he starts to move out from there and begin to teach and meets uh, five of the former mendicants, four, four monks who were colleagues of his or contemporaries of him, whom he had known. And uh, in some of the texts, they say he's walking along and they're coming towards him. And they recognize him and it says, it's definitely an annotated text, but it says, and one of them said to the other, there comes that lazy monk, Gautama, who left the austere life, the serious life of practice and went off to do the easy trip. And then as they came nearer to him, they saw that he had a certain look about him and that he glowed, and he had a really look of wonderfulness about him. 
And they said, wait a minute. He, this is not the same old Gautama. It looks like he knows something. So they meet him, and they say, you look like you know something. And he says, I do. And it's said that they, those five people, those five men, are the five people to whom he preaches the sermon, turn, setting into motion the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, in which he teaches the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And then the whole rest of his natural life is going from here to here to here to here to here and telling stories that are parables and not so many of them are instructions. The only ones that I know that are actually instructions are, uh, well, you could say the the first one, turning in, setting into motion the turning of the wheel, the four foundations of mindfulness teaches how to do mindfulness practice. The metta sutta, which you just got as a present to take home and put on your bulletin board or your mirror in your bathroom, underlining the word omitting none. That would be a sweet way to end for today, wouldn't it? I think so. Because... I, I won't be here next week, and I, I, nor the week after. Then I'll be back. Um, the I think the first two weeks in February, the fifth and the twelfth. So Donald will be back next week. Um, I know that that worked out well for you while I was gone with Tony and with Heidi. Well, they, aren't they great? Aren't they? They're just. I'm very happy for them. <laughs> They're very happy with you. They want to know when I'm going to take another sabbatical. So thank you. <laughs> you might want to know that uh, the Lehrman trilogy, and who saw it? Fantastic, isn't it? It is coming back to the Lark Theater on February 2nd, a Sunday, at two at 1 o'clock. And I have bought tickets for several people in my family because it's the best theater I've seen in a long time and because it's in my notes to bring up in the next time we meet together. It's not absolutely a homework. If you don't go, uh, I'll tell you what it's about and what why, why it's important. But it's just going to be here for two performances and then it's gone again. And it's phenomenal theater. And one of the lines it says about, you know about the Lehrman Brothers who started in 1840 and became a very big investment firm and an investment bank and failed in 2008 and became bankrupt. Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers. What did I say? Huh? Whatever I said, Lehman is what I meant. Uh... And in the, one of the lines in uh, the whole play was the layman's were invincible until they weren't. And it's such a, because you've seen the play up to then and then you see it, it's such a poignant moment. So you don't have to see it, but I'm just telling you inside information, the 2nd of February. Um, 
and also it's here what, what I what I have to say about it at that time. But I'm very glad to be back. So Heidi and <laughs> and Tony uh, will come back when I'm going to be away again, which in in March I think one or the other of them will be back. But we'll all trade off, and I'm happy that you're happy. They were very happy to be here. Did any of our guests who are visiting have something that they wanted to ask or say? Jane, how about you? Emily? Anybody want to say something? Yeah. This is a wonderful book. I was just thinking about uh, the fact that um, last week, now I think we're going to, everybody's got a, a metta sutta, so we'll read it together. Is I want to tell you that the the main. I'll tell you as we go along. Let's let's just start. I'm going to stop you during. One two three. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and seated intended and easily satisfied, unburdened by booties and in their ways, and wise and not proud and demanding in nature, not do, do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wait. That's piece one. That is integrity training. That's the first third of it. That says, first of all, you have to make sure that you are behaving yourself properly in the world. Um, I particularly love that it gives instruction, instruction, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Then it has that great line, not doing the slightest thing that the wives would later reprove. And I have a feeling like they said, don't do this, da, 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 da. Then it says, in case I miss something, let's just make one overall thing not doing the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. So in case I miss something that's in there. Now we read again, wishing. If you want to, it means to say, you have to do that so that you will be, uh, you will feel the bliss of blamelessness is what the Buddha called it. And you would be able to wish in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease. Let them not, and may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen or the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state, none through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart 
should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness to the entire world, seeing the depths, and outward to the depths, outward and unbounded. Stop, 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 stop. We have read the part about what you should actually do. And that whole middle part, in essence, says, under no circumstances is ill will supposed to come out of you. Not, omitting none. Not this, not that. You should not despise anybody in any circumstances. The despising hurts the person who's the despiser. It's painful in the mind to despise. Can look away or do something else. But actively not liking cuts you off from the whole rest of the world. To be able to see all the whole world as fellow human creatures in a world of creatures making their way around this imperiled planet. We want to be open and feel a part of it all. You have to really not have ill will to it. It's, okay. This is the that's the cultivating the mind part. The end part is what does wisdom look like? The end part is wisdom. This is how it would be. Freed from ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, already a vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again to this view. So wait, wait. What I would like you to do, we have three minutes left. In the next two minutes, I would like you to talk to whoever you talked to before, if they're still here. And taking that particular sentence, one should sustain this recollection, which is said to be the sublime abiding. What recollection should you sustain? Ready, set, go. That's what Anne told me, but thank you for letting us know this year. I don't yeah, check. Oh, you know what? I'm going to leave these set up. Because Are they we on?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.